Today we begin a new series looking at the last events leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Oftentimes this last week of the life of Jesus is called the Passion Week. Now what's interesting about the Passion Week and the events surrounding it are that the events could often be captured in a symbol or an image. The Passion Week begins with an event called the Triumphal Entry and the corresponding image or symbol to that event is the Palm. See, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the crowds gathered and they shouted, Hosanna, and they welcomed him in as the son of David, another way to declare him as king. And as they were doing this, they waved palm branches. And so this powerful image of palm branches and the people shouting and declaring Jesus to be king with the triumphal entry. Now, what's incredibly important for us to understand, though, is that the events in the New Testament are shaped and formed by previous events in the Old Testament. And one of the interesting things about the Old Testament is there's so many loose ends. There's these plot holes that aren't resolved completely or in their entirety in the Old Testament. And so when you're reading the, the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, there's often these loose ends that are longing and anticipating a greater further resolve to occur. And so you, as a faithful reader of the scriptures, as you're reading these events, you want to look back and see how these loose ends are being resolved. And there's this sort of mystery that can take place as you read the New Testament and you begin to put these pieces together. Now, what I'd like to do is focus on three major loose ends regarding the triumphal entry. And as we understand how these loose ends are resolved in the story and person of Jesus, we can bring greater clarity to the event of the triumphal entry. So with that, loose end number one. One of the major themes that's left unresolved in the Old Testament is the missing glory of the Spirit of God in the temple. In 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and destroy Jerusalem along with the temple. And those who survived were taken off into exile. Now, the prophet Ezekiel appears on the scene as one of the people who are taken in one of the first waves of the exile, and he's prophesying and looking to the future when God will finally renew his people and bring them back into the land. In Ezekiel 11, 19 through 22, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after the detestable things and the abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with their wheels beside them and the glory of God of Israel was over them. Ezekiel is saying that God is going to renew his people and bring judgment on those who search after the, the detestable things. But then listen to this. This is incredibly important. Ezekiel eleven twenty three through 25. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So Ezekiel gives us an image. It's an image of the glory of God departing from the temple and then standing on this mountain that is east of Jerusalem. So you have to keep this picture in your mind. It's the glory, the presence of the Lord standing on an eastern mountain right next to Jerusalem. This brings us to loosened number two. 
The Old Testament that Jews read in the time of Jesus is the exact same Old Testament that we have today. So all of the books that they were reading in the time of Jesus are the same books that are in our Bible. There is one interesting difference, however, and that difference de deals with the ordering of those books. And so for our modern Bibles, the last book that we look at in the Bible is Malachi. And the last verse in that is Malachi 4, 5 through 6, which says, Behold, I will send to you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. However, one of the orderings that was around in the time of Jesus didn't end with the book of Malachi, but it ended with the book of 2 Chronicles. Now listen to how the last verse ends ends what Second Chronicles functioning as the last book in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 36, 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. It's sort of a weird way to end the Old Testament, right? It's like super abrupt. The idea is this, King Cyrus is now in charge of the new empire of the day. And one of the things that he decrees is that the people of Israel, God's people, can go back up to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Now, a couple important things. The language is specific and awkward. I mean, it ends with, let him go up. So the last image you have in 2 Chronicles is the people of God needing to go up and rebuild the temple. Now, this is also associated with the first Lucind because the rebuilding of the temple has to do with the presence of God. Remember, the temple is the place that the Spirit of God, the glory of God would uniquely manifest. And so Lucin number one and two are related and they deal with the returning of the presence of the living God, which leads us to loose end number three. The last loose end has to deal with this idea that God would one day send a righteous king, and this king would succeed where all the other kings of Israel had failed. And these prophecies are prom and promises are scattered all throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you just a few. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness for this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The prophet Jeremiah also points to this. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Again, listen to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. So three loose ends that are not resolved by the end of the Old Testament, and each loose end gives us an image. 
The first loose end in image is the Spirit of God leaving the temple and standing on a mountain east of Jerusalem. The second loose end in image is Israel set to go up and build a place for the presence of God. The third loose end in image is a king set to come to Jerusalem, the holy city, and this king will be God's anointed, the Messiah. Now, what's about to occur is the weaving together of these three loose ends and them finding their resolve in the person and work of Jesus. Now, in order to understand this, let's jump back to the story of the triumphal entry and ask a couple questions. The first question we ask is, when are we? One of the things that's easy to miss is that when you jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you jump by roughly 400 years. There's a 400-year gap between the last page of the Old Testament and the first page of the New Testament. So when you turn your Bible, just that simple one page, you are fast-forwarding by 400 years. Additionally, it's been 500 years, roughly 500 years, since a rightful king has sat on the throne of David in the same manner that David sat and ruled. On top of that, it's been roughly 500 years since the Spirit of God has been manifestly present in the unique way that it was in the time of Solomon, where there's the powerful manifestation of a smoke and a cloud revealing the presence and glory of God. So there's this great anticipation leading up to this. Now, the second question we ask is not when, but where. Where are we? And Luke 18 gives us the details. Right before the triumphal entry, Jesus takes a trip to a city. That city is Jericho. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the side of the road begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this is fascinating for a number of reasons. First, Jesus is, is in Jericho, and there is this blind man who declares Jesus to be king by calling him son of David. That's what he's doing. So there's this man who cannot see, but he clearly sees who Jesus truly is. Now, the healing of the blind is not just some ordinary miracle. If you go back through the Old Testament, you are not going to see recovery of sight. It is a miracle in the Old Testament that was specifically envisioned for God himself for like the coming messianic age. So this is a profound miracle. It's kind of giving you a hint at who this Jesus really is. Now, the other thing that's fascinating is Jesus goes down to Jericho before he goes up to Jerusalem. Now, listen to my words there because I'm being specific. He goes down to Jericho before he goes up to Jerusalem. Jericho is one of the oldest inhabited cities in all of human history. But additionally, Jericho is the lowest city there ever was. It sits 846 feet below sea level. So if you were going to go up to Jerusalem, there is no place on earth that would make the down journey and up journey any clearer. So it's like the greatest way to paint this picture. You are going to go down to the deepest city on earth, 146 feet below sea level, before going up to Jerusalem. Remember all the loose ends and how they're working. This is powerful imagery being used in the text. Now also, there's another fascinating detail, is the route that Jesus takes from Jericho to Jerusalem has him going through a specific location. And the text makes this clear. 
The text says that on his journey from Jericho to Jerusalem, Jesus stops at a place called the Mount of Olives. Now, you want to take a wild guess at exactly where the Mount of Olives is? The Mount of Olives is the mountain directly east of Jerusalem. Luke 19, 28 through 31. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So the glory of the Lord was sitting on the eastern mountain, which is the Mount of Olives, which is the point where Jesus comes in from. And then Jesus goes down to Jericho and all the way up into Jerusalem. And the prophecies of the coming king riding in a colt, they are all being fulfilled. All the tension is finding their resolve in the person of Jesus. Now the text goes on. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, the Gospel of John draws our attention to the palm branches. John chapter 12, verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So the people are declaring Jesus to be King and they're shouting Hosanna, which means please save us. And this is what the palm branches are all about. The palm branches declare that Jesus is king and they cry out to him, Lord, save us. You are the king. You can save us and we trust you. But this response is not the response that everyone gives. Luke 19, 39 through 40 says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. On top of this, we know that although the crowd might have cheered at the triumphal entry, the crowds of Jerusalem would later chant, crucify him. They went from crown him to kill him, which shows us just how fickle we can be. One day we worship, the next we betray, which should make us strive all the more to be a people of faithfulness. We want to be people that are faithful. Whatever the crowds may be chanting, whatever the mob may be shouting, Lord, we want to be faithful. May the rocks never have to cry out in our lives. So who sits on the throne in your life? I mean, think about this question critically. It's one thing to say, Lord, I want salvation, save me. It's another thing to take that salvation and then commit yourself to a life of faithfulness. And so this is what the palm teaches us. We want salvation, but then in return, we want to be faithful. We want to never have the stones cry out. So ask yourself right now in these closing moments, are there areas in my life where I am demonstrating unfaithfulness? Ask the Lord to reveal those to you. Show me how I am being unfaithful and guide me in repentance, Lord. We want to be a faithful people.
Now, I don't want us to end just looking back at the Palm event with the triumphal entry. I also want us to look forward to another event surrounding the Palms. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we stand between two palm branch events. May we be faithful in the in-between.